Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitar players from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 155. Now today I'm speaking to Canadian guitarist Sean Verreau. Sean is the frontman and lead guitarist of the band Wide Mouth Mason, Canadian band with gold records, major label signings, all that kind of stuff under its belt. And Sean is a fantastic guitar player, synthesizing blues, roots, soul, funk influences into his own unique voice. Sean joins us today to speak about his career, including his mind-boggling tri-slide style. It's a type of lap steel playing, incorporating three slides on the fretting hand. It's crazy. You've got to hear it to believe it. We also hear about a life on the road and lessons learnt from sharing stages with ACDC, the Rolling Stones, jams with Robert Randolph, and much more. I love the conversation I had with Sean. He's super inspiring and articulate, and I know you're going to love this interview. This episode is brought to you by The Pedal Movie, a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the Music Gear Marketplace Reverb. I am super excited about this film. The Pedal Movie features nearly 100 interviews with people like Steve Vai, Peter Frampton, Jay Maskus, Billy Corgan, and more, including some of our Guitar Speak podcast alumni like Dweezil Zappa, Sarah Lipstate, Johnny Barmer, and Brian Wampler. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit www.thepedalmovie.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Sean Verreau, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for jumping in. Now we are speaking in uh, early May 2021. Um, what what's happening specifically for gigs and that sort of thing? You know, as we're living in the uh, in the pandemic, a, a lot of not very much. Um, okay, okay. We we our our province in particular uh, throughout COVID was sort of a model for how to deal with it for a North American city. And then we, at some point in the last couple of months, fell quite behind. Um, and I've, I've had one round of vaccination, and I know a lot of people here have. It's sort of going by age group and, yep. and, and you know, how, how urgent it is for people to get it. Um, there have been some people doing distanced 
gigs and obviously live streams throughout the entire pandemic. Um, and I've done a couple of them, um, but there, there hasn't really been a return to live music. So I'm just tortured daily mm. by my social media reminding me where I was a year ago, where I yeah. was two years ago, three yeah. years ago, and all the great gigs and, and friends and, and extended families that we'd all be seeing. Um, but in many ways, I've enjoyed the, the woodshedding, the, mm -hmm. the really getting a chance to dig into the instrument and, and practice for hours in a way that I, I wouldn't if I was gigging constantly. So, um, so yeah, it's, I, I feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel. We originally, we had just put out a record. My band Widemouth Mason had put a record out um, and our, our summer of beautiful blues and roots festivals um, that was all planned, of course, got canceled. And initially they moved everything to, okay, it'll happen the same weekend in 2020. And now those have been canceled as well. So I am waiting with bated breath and, and crossed fingers for when we can start to play live music again and see live music again. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the album. That's I want to go with you that came out late 2019, I think. That's yeah. Right. We'll definitely get to that. But uh, your band, of course, is Wide Mouth Mason. And I guess for the best part of the last 30 years, you've, you've been on the road gigging incessantly and, and releasing albums. So, yeah, it must be quite a shift the last year or so. Yeah, it is. I um, When I became a dad, I slowed down a lot of the, you know, being gone for weeks at a time or months okay. for a yep. time. But I think at at this this era of the band's existence, having you know, formed um, in the sort of mid nineties and started putting out records in the later nineties. And mm -hmm. there were, uh, I've, I've lived those 200 shows a year, years of my life and, yeah. and love them and changed so much as a player and as a person from traveling that much and performing that much. Um, but now I think it's, it, it suits us really well to go play three or four shows in a row and then, come back and and be with our families and live life and then head out again and it's a, a really nice balance and allows for a lot of creativity and and just being a, a well-rounded human yeah that's super important i love that balance uh, i'm a dad as well I, I totally get that so that's awesome. oh nice yeah yeah very cool when you said you've been woodshedding a little more this uh, last past period what have you been up to well, I've done some soundtracking work on some films and uh, people have sent me stems to play just guitar tracks on. Um, but the, the thing that I've mostly dedicated myself to as a player, um, I, I not since I was 21 years old and in a cover band had I really learned a lot of other people's music. Once we started um, you know, recording our own songs and touring, playing our own music, I would I would learn some other people's songs as, as I was inspired to. Um, but I, I lost touch with the thing that I used to do when I was 14, 15 all the time, which was just to put on a record and put headphones on and imagine that I was in the band, um, yeah. not to necessarily learn the other musicians parts, but to, in this time of a void of, of live music and collaboration with other musicians to just put on, you know, James Brown's, James Brown's star time box set 
and put the headphones on and not know what's going to come next and just imagine I'm on stage and I uh -huh. have to play something complimentary and not too much, but find a part that fits. And um, uh, as I've been developing further the style of lap steel that I've, that I've started to work on and develop, um, I really found that learning not only the, the changes to other people's songs, but trying to arrange them as solo performances where I'm playing the melody and the rhythm and, and all that stuff simultaneously, um, working through a really varied catalog and kind of making myself a deal that every day or two, I would learn and post my version of some other song by somebody else. Taught me a lot of moves, man, and a lot of uh -huh. inversions. And, a, yeah. and I had to problem solve in a way that you don't when you're just improvising or just jamming or playing, writing your own songs. You're not forced to go, okay, if I'm here and I need to get this note in the melody, where do, what, what inversion facilitates that in the best way? And uh -huh. particularly on lap steel where it can, it, there's more ways for it to go wrong than to go right <laughs> intonation wise. So sure. it's really made me focus on that and learn a lot of great, uh, uh, great moves and, and patterns and changes and harmonizations for writing my own music. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got to say, I've, um, but started following your, your social media stuff and I love your Instagram feed. Cause yeah, there's all these great cover versions from Van Halen to, uh, 70s pop stuff. Um, it's great, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it. Thanks, man. Now, when you say uh, there's more that can go wrong that can go right with slide, um, you've made it three times as hard for yourself in that regard. <laughs> I have. <laughs> with this tri-slide technique. Let me back up a little bit further, though. So when, um, when the first Wide Mouth Mason records came out, um, they're very blues rock, uh, groove-oriented. Um, I don't think I was hearing a lot of slide on those records. When, when did slide become an important part of your style. Maybe just we'll start with the one slide to start with. Yeah, it, <laughs> as I did, I did start with the one. Um, <laughs> I grew up loving um, Hendrix and Prince were my two guys. Okay. Um, and, and obviously Stevie Ray Vaughan was such a great gateway into all of blues history that when, when he really hit and, you know, my guitar teaching me couldn't stand the weather Stevie yep. was so magnanimous in all of his interviews about, well, if you like me, you got to check out all, all the Kings and yes, and all these yeah. guys and my brother. And yeah. Um, so I grew up loving that and was inspired to play by, you know, the beginning of when doves cry and the end of let's go crazy. We're just, yeah, okay, I need yeah. to get this in my life, whatever this is. Um, and I, I, I pursued that style of, of the, I was particularly drawn to the, the sort of chord melody, um, filling a couple roles at once role of guitar players, like, like Jimmy did in the experience and Stevie Ray did. And the way that um, Andy Summers growing up in the eighties as a police yeah. fan, like how did they make three people sound so big? And often the guitar part is a mix of, melody and rhythm at the same time so i really threw myself into that and the um the first few records of ours that did really well there was there was no slide playing at all mm -hmm. um but we were playing in a lot of environments where we were exposed to slide players and and seeing them and hearing them 
Um, and on our, on our second or third, depending on how you look at independent releases versus major label releases record, there was a song that just kind of asked for a slide part. It was needing that, that sound more than me wanting to shoehorn it into something. Mm -hmm. And I just realized how particular the intonation and the nuance is where there's no just putting your finger in the right place and having the fret complete it for you. Um, and I really struggled to record a, 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 a very single notey kind of thing on, on one song on, on our second or third record. And, but found it really compelling and human voice-like and mm -hmm. realized that once I climbed some of the enormous mountain that had just presented itself in front of me, that there was going to be some, some lyricism and some control that I wouldn't be able to access any other way than figuring it out. But it was pretty eye-watering and learning how to do it in the studio for one song versus then standing up on a dark stage in front of people and trying to do it. There were many live shows that I'm glad there, there isn't, you know, there weren't iPhones and there wasn't footage <laughs> yeah, of yeah. me taking my baby steps yeah. into the world of slide, but you kind of have to do that. You know, you have to immerse yourself in that foreign language and go, this is this, I'm just going to start doing it and I'll hit the ditch a little bit less each time. And, start to make my way with it. Um, and then uh, it, becoming aware of Sonny Landreth a little bit. Um, the, uh -huh. Actually, the, the first slide thing that really turned me on um, once I, it, before I even picked it up was a, do you remember in Guitar Player Magazine, they used to have the sound pages, those yeah. floppy records that, Absolutely. and there was one that was a David Tronzo song. Yeah, uh, I remember that one. Playing just ridiculous <laughs> slide that i'd never heard a slide sound like before and okay. that was yeah that was the genesis of of thinking that you could do more with it than um than trying to do a less inspiring version of of you know what elmore james or muddy waters did okay okay yeah cool oh man the sound page that brings back memories that that was such a cool thing yeah <laughs> A record inside the magazine. That's that's super cool. A square, yeah, piece of a square record of that. Whatever plastic that was, <laughs> that was floppy, and um, you know, just because there was so much less content, you mm. couldn't just YouTube someone if you wanted to learn how to play something, and you couldn't just go on Instagram and check out stuff or the, you know, the guitar player site and look at all of their past content every month. When I get that magazine, it would be pouring through it and memorizing. I could probably recall what page comes after what page and in, okay. in a, a bunch of guitar magazines from about 19, you know, 1989 or 90 to the, the two thousands easy. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Hey, what, what kind of stuff were you doing when you were building up your chops? Like what were you doing to get better at it? Like you mentioned the, the Tronzo track was an inspiration, but were there particular yeah, pieces you're trying to nail or exercises? It was, it, it was kind of like when you're first starting to play acoustic and you have, and you first become aware of the F chord and you know, it's <laughs> going to hurt 
and you know yeah. you're not going to accomplish it more than half the time you set out to do it. Um, so slide was sort of that when it first started for me again, where I would um, close my eyes and, and play an open string and then try to slide up to the octave and, okay. and, and be comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. um, to, to not hide behind vibrato, but to be able to choose judiciously how much vibrato and how wide I wanted it to be. I, yeah. Um, the, the muscles required for, for bottleneck are not completely, um, divorced from the ones for playing regular style in mm -hmm. the same, in the way that lap steel is where that's a whole other set of muscles. But, um, I would just sort of sing along with things. One thing that it revealed, um, was how interesting it is to approach the guitar horizontally thinking of moving up and down one string mm -hmm. versus moving vertically across groups of strings, because all of us, the downside to learning finger positions and boxes and patterns is that people tend to stay in them and let the muscle memory guide them to the next note rather than melodically what, what they're in pursuit of. And just to, to do patterns by rote, we all do it. So, the, the early days of slide were a lot of playing up and down on one string mm -hmm. for as long as I could and trying to make each note in tune and, uh, and then giving myself one more string, the string next to it to either make okay. chords out of or to try and play again, up and down horizontally in tune on. So it was, it was really good training, uh, like Mr. Miyagi style training for, <laughs> almost every other thing I ended up doing on guitar, but there was no way around the fact that it was going to be slow, grueling process and that there were still always going to be um, notes that I didn't mean to hit or, or it revealed to me in the same way that a drummer having to play to a click track in the studio for the first time is becomes aware of, Oh, I thought my meter was a hundred percent and it's yeah, not. Sure. And this is, proving it to me uh, that hearing myself play slide made me listen a lot more closely to my intonation and my tuning. Has that, um, has that impacted your regular or conventional guitar playing as well? Very much so. Yeah. Very much. Well, and all those guys that I loved, particularly, you know, Stevie's right hand, um, Jimmy's right hand, when they wanted to get more expressive, they would hit harder. Mm -hmm. um, where slide is like, you know, learning about quantum physics or something. It's <laughs> you, you only have so hard that you can hit it before it just bottoms out and doesn't make any sound, but you discover mm -hmm. there's all of this range underneath zero that is equally as effective as all the range that's above zero. So, the, the intricacy and the touch sensitivity of, of what's the gentlest I can touch this and make it make sound and finding all the range between that and a regular pick strike mm -hmm. um, was taught me a lot about what both my right hand and my left hand can, uh, you know, evoke from the guitar if I'm using all of those techniques rather than just the really hard ones that I grew up playing 13s and hitting it hard uh -huh, to be like yeah. Stevie yeah. Um, slide was like, 
I, I immediately felt more comfortable with bare fingers on my right hand okay. to be able yeah. to mute and make sure that I wasn't, um, that was one thing I, I got hit to pretty quick was muting the extraneous noises and those weird ghostly mm. sounds that can happen if you're not aware of muting with your palm on your right hand or your other fingers on your left hand. That I got pretty quickly, but then it was just putting the rest of it into practice with precision and, and, uh, and decision making. Okay. What about tunings? Did you, I guess before slide, were you playing in standard most of the time? Did you start using uh, open tunings at all when you moved to slide? What was going on I've, I've Having become a fan of Michael Hedges, I found myself tuning my acoustic into open tunings a lot and mm-hmm. doing um, almost like meditating or trance-like stuff of, of, you know, moving one note around or two notes around against the backdrop of all the other open notes in open A or open E or something. It wasn't something I had any proficiency with playing chords other than one finger bars or partial things that I was just stumbling upon by moving around. Um, and it would take quite some time to decode that. Most of the slide playing I did uh, when I was just learning was in standard tuning. Um, and, you know, the the D, G, and B strings are a triad when you're in standard tuning, and they're very similar to the the backbone of what open e d c any of those are Uh so it um uh, one thing i'd learned from playing in a trio um pre-slide was that oftentimes you know you don't want to blow playing all six strings until you need a moment of bigger impact in the song like save that for the chorus but play the verses just with two and three string chords so that the bass is holding down the bottom and so that you can create, you know, peaks and valleys without having any other instruments to add that I would save full bar chords for a moment of impact and play the rest of the time with two and three note chords. So Mm -hmm. I was already doing that. And so I transferred that to slide as well going, I don't always have to be playing all six strings. In fact, it gets muddier in a lot of situations. If I do that, where you can, you can, you know, give the impression of a full seventh chord by playing a flat seventh and a third. So that can be more powerful sometimes Mm -hmm. than playing the entire thing. Sure. How about lap steel? When did that come into your arsenal? Not until many, many years later. Um, I, I think I was probably in my late thirties before I, I ever sat down to try one in earnest and do anything other than, you know, um, Bugs Bunny sort of theremin sounds, um, (laughs) when I'd found myself sitting in front of one. Um, and I did a series of gigs with some, some dear friends from my hometown where I grew up. And at the end of it, one of the guitar players who hadn't really been playing much, but these gigs got him playing again, gave me a really generous gift of a lap steel that he'd carved himself. And wow installed the pickup on some quarters that he drilled holes in and and went here. I thank you for, for arranging these gigs. I want you to have this. And I, I really gave it a go in the traditional fashion with a a bar, like a Stevens bar in my left hand. And just felt like, like I alluded to before the muscles required to do 
lap steel are, you know, the, the difference between swimming and walking, it's a totally different mechanic from playing even bottleneck on regular guitar. Mm -hmm. So I was really getting into ruts where I was just like, well, I just sound like an out of tune version of, of, uh, inserts, steel guitar player here I, I was really struggling to find my own voice with it um so i would use it for sound effecty things or or that kind of stuff or as a pad behind something where you just kind of shake the bar a little bit and have it you know have a, an atmospheric sort of a background noise that's diatonic mm -hmm. um but as i've been developing my bottleneck style having having heard Sonny Landreth and uh, we're, we're friends with the, I'm, I'm not sure if they've toured Australia, but a band called Big Wreck and their, their guitar player, Ian Thornley, um, showed me at some gigs we did together that he was pressing down behind the slide in order to yeah, play yeah. different melodies and, and different kinds of chords. And I evolved that over a bunch of time playing with it to just think of my pinky as, or think of the slide as my pinky. It just mm -hmm. is made out of a different material but um rather than thinking of pressing notes down behind the slide i just sort of think of it as that's whatever my pinky would do the slide will cover um and it was one day when i was i was in a studio producing a record and that lap steel was living there and i just picked it up that day and it dawned on me that if i had another thing on another finger i could do with it what I do with my other fingers when I play bottleneck slide, which okay. is to cover some other notes or play, you know, a tone apart and play melodies. And to my astonishment, it kind of worked even that first time with mm -hmm. a, a slide that didn't really fit on one finger and holding another slide in between my index finger and thumb. It was like, okay, this is promising. I'm going to take this lap steel home again and uh -huh. see what I can do. And then I went down all kinds of fun but ridiculous wormholes of of trying to find out what fingers I should put stuff on what thing I thought if I put something on every finger then it's just a gimmick then it, I might as well just use my four fingers to like I was playing guitar uh -huh. and I've always loved um Roland Kirk and Charlie Hunter and Stanley Jordan and people who their entire approach to the instrument was unique, but it, but they would have been unique on any instrument that they played. Like it, it couldn't be something that was just a gimmick for the sake of, Hey, look how weird this looks when I work harder to make this sound the same as if I was playing a regular guitar, I, I identified pretty quickly that I could, if I worked at it would potentially be able to do stuff I couldn't do any other way, which was, to have one note sliding in one direction and another mm -hmm. note sliding in another direction where things could resolve with one note going up and one note going down and one note staying the same. Very cool. So I, I tried rings and ends of bolts and parts of boats and, and all <laughs> kinds of slides on different hands. And I, I came to the conclusion that I was going to need something to mute with again, to kill those ringy noises uh, that you yeah, don't yeah. want. So I was going to leave my pinky empty and, um, I needed some room between the fingers that had slides on them in order to, 
to just have the real estate to move around and to not weigh my hand down with pounds and pounds of materials. Um, so what seemed to work the best for me and what I'm doing to this day is to have a slide on my ring finger, uh, a, sh a slightly shorter slide on my index finger, and then a slide on my thumb. And I was using just regular bottlenecks for that for the longest time and having to kind of catch the string with the end of the slide without it, you know, just being my bare finger sticking uh -huh. out the top of the slide. Yeah. And I, I stumbled on um, a builder called The Rock Slide. It's this guy, Danny Songhurst, who makes slides that I use and the, um, Joey Landreth and Ariel Posen and uh, um, Nathaniel Murphy and a whole bunch of players use the, the Rock Slides now. And the ones that he makes have a there is the option of having a ball tip so it's a rounded tip on the end of the slide without it being open which was a complete game changer for my style of developing with three slides at once because then i could hammer on and pull off with just this very particular almost rounded point that that came oh, to okay yeah and when i'm using much of the time my third finger is like a bar it's like a capo and my index finger and thumb are playing the melody and the and the stuff on top of it. But yep. I can also use my thumb or first finger as the bar. And because of the rounded tip of the slides, push down with my third finger or my index finger behind the slide mm -hmm. and make minor chords and seventh chords and that kind of stuff out of that. So yeah, cool. Um, wow. That that was about six years ago that I had that first epiphany at the studio and and ever since i like i said with bottleneck i just started showing up at gigs and going listen guys a bunch of tonight is gonna suck i'm a i'm a person who just moved to france and doesn't speak french basically <laughs> and i'm gonna learn not by falling asleep to records that are playing mm -hmm. and and taking french class but i'm just gonna immerse myself in it and have mm -hmm. no way out but this and Thankfully, the people I was playing with were patient and, and inspired by the fact that after, you know, having a band that's done well and being a recognized player in my scene that I would just go back to the drawing board and, mm. and throw caution to the wind and show up and, and make a mess of it again for a bit. <laughs> and there would be parts every night where I'd look down and go, oh, my God, I don't know how to get out of this hole I've gotten into. <laughs> but there would be a few times every gig where I'd look down and go, wait, what's that? That's a new seventh chord. I never, wow, oh, awesome. wait, what's that? That's a, that's how I can get from here to here. And yep. it was just so exciting and dangerous and fun to not know after all these years of uh -huh. having a pretty good idea most of the time. That is super cool. I've got to say, I, I, I really admire you jumping in when you say that, um, that you know, you've done it later in your career or yeah after being an established musician you um, we're talking gold records major label um mm -hmm. contracts that kind of stuff you've already established obviously worked super hard to establish your uh your, your voice as a guitar player and then you do this so just to back up on the mechanics so for lap steel um obviously your fretting hand well to use for want of a better term your left hand uh your pinky is facing the nut Obviously, uh, my pinky is facing the nut. That's the, right. The thumb is yep. facing, say, the bridge. So, so your that's pinky, right. your pinky is mainly the muting finger because it's that's bare. 
Yeah, it's 99% of the time, it's the muting extraneous noises on the strings I don't want to play yep. or helping me position the slide that's on my ring finger, the ring finger. Yeah, in okay. the right place. Yep. Um, and then, and the then fourth... my, my middle finger doesn't have anything on it. I do sometimes use it um, to uh, pluck behind the slide to to play okay. harmonics and stuff okay. but that's yep. that's a work in progress right now it's kind of the most underutilized thing and then uh my my index finger has a slide that comes just to the top of the kind of middle knuckle so that i can bend it to to play notes uh against when when my ring finger is holding this on as a bar or as a capo yeah. my first finger can pretty comfortably get from you know, the first to the fifth string uh, to add a note one fret away from it or two or three or four okay. frets away from it. And then my thumb also has something on it. So um, like the Canadian guitarist, Jeff Healy, I grew up watching play and then played yeah. some shows with as we got older. Oh, wow. I was always impressed by the reach from his pinky to his thumb was like a, yeah. a, a sixth or seventh sometimes, depending on where he was on the neck. And I'm a I'm afforded that kind of range now with having these slides on different fingers. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw Healy, he came to Australia in the early nineties and yeah, you know, like everyone, I was just blown away. Um but that reach was a huge thing because the same thing, your hand on above the fretboard, you've got your thumb in play, which he's used for bending and all sorts of things. So that's Yeah. Cool. Yeah. With your technique on slide, um on again on one of your covers videos playing um a Van Halen tune. What was the, uh, was it Hot Teacher or? <laughs> I've done uh, Panama and Panama. Hot Teacher and, uh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, Unchained. And man, Panama and Hot for Teacher were almost like dares to myself just to <laughs> see if I could figure out a way. Um, I've experimented before with having something on my right hand that I could tap with, whether it was a, a okay. little slide on my pinky or a ring yeah. or something. Um, but the volume of the thick slides on my left hand, I could never match up with the volume okay. of what I would finger tap. So yeah. I realized that I'd have to, rather than finger tapping, like for the beginning of hot for teacher, yeah. that, that I just have to figure out a way to finger pick that yeah. and, and hammer on and pull off with the slide fast enough to, yeah make it seem like that's all happening when it's supposed to. So yeah. that was a huge one. I think that's how we, as I've, as I've been learning these other songs or getting techniques in my head, um, I've just figured out that if you make the very hardest thing you can do that day, the second hardest thing the day after by learning something even harder than that, or okay. <laughs> trying to attain a technique that's even, even, more demanding than that the next day that by the third or fourth day that thing that was the hardest thing three or four days ago becomes pretty fluid and easy because it's okay. been pushed down the scale a little yeah. bit um and your brain wraps around it because it's so busy trying to process the new thing that you're challenging yourself to do um i i found those van halen songs and uh um 
ones where there's a lot of melodic movement, like I've, I've arranged 50 ways to leave your lover for to, yeah. to play the melody and the chord changes at the same time, where yeah, really cool. they were just brain stretchers, but a really <laughs> satisfying and rewarding puzzle to try and crack because it at first I'd go, well, you know, Cliffs of Dover, how the hell am I going to play that on a lap steel? <laughs> well, you have the added bonus of, I, I mainly play an open D or C, so I have a major chord there. So any of the arpeggios that Eric would do were were mostly under my fingers. And yep. I would just kind of make it a, a thing that I would work on. And, and COVID, I mean, I had some hours to dedicate it in between daddying and and my day gig at a, at a guitar company here that I was working remotely and doing. So um, I would just throw myself into it and not stop until I figured it out. There was one time I, I posted a song um, when Blake Mills's most recent record came out and posted a version of myself playing it. And someone went, Hey, Hey Blake, check this out. And he went, Haha, that's great. Uh, now do far sickness, which is a, a really beautiful dense piano song with these really close voiced chords in it. And he said it as a, you know, as a joke, like, oh, now just do this thing that'd be impossible on lap steel. And, and I just went, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So <laughs> two, two days later, I had worked up an arrangement of it and posted it. And I just got in that mindset where I'd, I'd look for songs that I thought would must be nearly impossible to play on a lap steel and try and figure out a way to, to do them and not stop until I solved enough problems or made enough mistakes that I kind of had a grip on it. I hope you are enjoying today's interview. Now, this podcast is brought to you by The Pedal Movie, a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the music gear marketplace Reverb. Now, you know we love guitar pedals here on the Guitar Speak podcast, and we're super excited on the release of this film. The Pedal Movie explores how effects pedals and their builders have shaped modern music and guitar playing over time, from the fuzz pedal experiments of the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, through the shoegaze and indie rock of the 90s, and up to the modern day use of effects. Reverb also speaks with builders and leaders from more than 50 pedal brands to answer the big question, how did guitar pedals get so big? Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play and Vudu. For more info, check out thepedalmovie.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology. <clears throat> Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by master guitar teacher Joe Elliott. Now, I was a beta tester for the course, and as a music educator myself, I was very impressed by the logical layout and format of the course. Heavyweight guitarists such as Brett Garsett and Greg Koch have also endorsed the program, so check it out at www.fretboardbiology.com. Okay, back to our interview. Hey, you've you've shared gigs and, and stages with a whole bunch of bands. So Jeff Healy, um, opening for ACDC, CZ Top. You got any any stories or any lessons learnt from from uh, rubbing shoulders with some of these musicians? Oh man, that's a great question. So many, so many things musically. Um, 
from watching those bands um, and, and to say nothing of just the, you know, we were really fortunate in that we, we started filling clubs ourselves and then going on the road with bands that were filling bigger clubs. And then um, we went on a tour opening for George Thorogood in sort of converted vaudeville theaters around the West coast of the U S and got comfortable there. And then, uh, the first big tour we got was opening for ACDC in arenas and, or, or sorry, for ZZ Top in arenas was the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned so much from watching those performances in each of those different levels about, you know, in a small club, you can be dense and frenetic and do a lot of little things. Yeah. But the bigger the room gets, the grander your gestures have to get you know, musically and performance wise and otherwise. Um, But the more there is swirling around in the air. So you need to have more space between what you do for it to connect to the person in the back of the room, Mm -hmm. because there's going to be stuff echoing and other things going on. So um, those were huge lessons learned from those people, the the pacing of the show, the when to do a faster one, when to do a slow one, Mm -hmm. when to leave space in between the songs and when not to. Um, Tonally, I found my tone getting cleaner uh, the bigger the shows got, which was very much inspired by... um, we, we, We got a call after we had finished a tour all across Canada and we were pretty worn out and we were going home going, look... Slash has dropped out of the the ACDC Stiff Upper Lip Tour. Um, if you can be in Florida in three days, you can open three or four shows. And if it goes all right, they might give you a week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went down and did it. And and the audience was expecting Slash because, of course, <laughs> they're not going to advertise to a sold-out performance. Sure. That, oh, by the way, the opener is going to be a different band. Not, yeah, yeah. No promoter is going to spend money on that. So yeah. <laughs> we walked out to expectation, which quickly turned to vocal disappointment <laughs> yeah. and then wow. had to play on from there. And we, we did well enough with the crowds. We had been in enough situations from growing up playing bars in the Canadian prairies to stare a crowd down and, and mm-hmm. play authoritatively until they liked you. And we just did that uh such that acdc and their crew who we were you know we were very low maintenance dudes to be on tour with said Uh why don't you just do the next seven weeks with us and and just open the entire north american tour and watching malcolm's right hand every night and wow and again that thing we talked about with how the most powerful chord sometimes is just two or three notes mm-hmm. and the, the timing and the way that you hit it. Um, that was hugely influential on, on everyone in the band. Um, how powerful and potent and being on stage when they were playing and going, this is, it's barely overdriven this tone. Mm. It's, yeah. it's a big, clean transparent nothing to hide behind tone and the growl and the snark of it comes from the attitude it comes from the way it's played and everyone around this entire echoey not made for audio stadium Mm -hmm. can hear exactly what he's doing and nothing's lost 
you know? Yeah, so yeah, wow. that was hugely in- inspiring to uh-huh. me as a player and taught me a lot about tone and note choices and, and yeah, the narrative arc of a, of a solo and a performance and, mm-hmm. and all that. And the, and the, the biggest thing as humans, I think we learned um, was watching, there was a night we played with the stones where Mick had a flu and could barely stand up before the show and then went out and ruled like a God and no one would know that he was sick uh-huh. and then walk off stage and people would pick him up and carry him in a heap to the dressing room after, or um, same thing with Angus where he would run around the stage at full speed for three hours and then be carried off by two people would make a bridge with their arms and they just dump Angus in it. And he didn't just do that in, you know, the major centers. He would do that everywhere, every night, because he knew that it was someone's first time seeing this band and he was going to, he was going to empty his reserves to give them everything that he had. That was a huge thing because you see some bands that start to phone it in or imagine where they'll be on the golf course the next day after a certain mm-hmm. point in their careers. And those guys were just so dedicated and all in and playing as if their heroes were in the wings, still watching them as even at the, you know, the decades into a massive career that they were still, it was that important to them was hugely inspiring. Yeah, that is awesome. There's a very cool video of you um, meeting Robert Randolph at a at a NAMM show mm. and ending up jamming together. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really fortunate that um, my day gig is an amazing one. Um, I work in business development at a company called Graph Tech Guitar Lab. So we oh, make okay. the nuts and saddles yeah, uh, yeah. and bridges and machine on, on, I think, some things, some of the guitars I can see behind you. Um, and I've I've been doing that for about five years, and it's it's so much fun every day to to work with and collaborate with and design things with. I mean, every major brand, every medium sized brand, and and so many one person luthier artisan guitar makers, bass makers, ukulele makers around the world. Um, it's just a, I, I nerd out on guitar stuff all day and pinch uh-huh. myself that I get to collaborate with these people whose work I've grown up playing. And one of the things that that entails was going to the NAM show um, and, and running our booth. And we were part of, of this artist um, event. And I had just, uh, I've, I've been playing my guitars with those those nut extender things on them for a while and obviously that that first lap steel i have that was carved and given to me um and i i'd gotten a 59 fender champion lap steel it's a student model that has numbers as as fret markers okay um but the the pickup in it is is incredible sounding and so i had just before we went to nam uh bought the Robert Randolph signature PV power stop power oh, yeah. slot. Yep. Um, I originally liked the idea. If you haven't seen it, it looks like a scimitar or something because there's a strap that you can use to play it standing up. Yeah, it's not like cool. a mellow bar where it's tilted, but you can wear the strap and um, mm. obviously knew of Robert's playing and, and dug it. So he showed up and we, we started talking and I showed him my, 
my champ and told him that I had just bought one of his lap seals. And he went, well, I have one in a gig bag right here. And we were doing this event where Steve Vai's guitar tech, Thomas Nordegg, was swapping out people's tuners to the, the ratio tuners that Graph Tech makes. We were doing okay. an event where players could come in and, and get them put on their guitars and, and try them out. And so Thomas had a couple amps that he was going through and he just went, well, Robert, why don't you plug into this one? And, and Sean, why don't you plug into this one? And you both have, so we just started jamming. We just started going for it. And he was uh, bemused and interested in the three slides that I was playing with. And yeah, his, he was. <laughs> his left hand is like a gospel singer. That's, seeing him do that close up and how precise uh, his, his intonation is of when he's again, going up and down one string mostly and just okay. singing with it. And, and we, we looked up and it was like a half hour later and we'd been playing the same blues song for, for that <laughs> amount of time. And we looked up and oh my God, there's Vernon Reed and all these people are hanging out watching this go down. Yeah. So um, we've since, stayed in touch and and i play that lap steel all the time i see robert at, at most nams and we you know message each other about cool stuff that we're playing and uh, um see. i actually cut the horn off of my randolph lap steel um because i discovered that i wasn't going to use it with the the strap to play standing okay. up and would have it on a stand most of the time in the the rhino horn on it, if if people have seen them before, would always kind of get in the way. So after a gig one night in Toronto, my friend with a, a woodworking shop said, "Well, come by. We'll we'll you know take a a coffee can lid and draw a perfect arc on one part of it and just saw that sucker off." And uh -huh. Uh -huh. I think Robert was pretty tickled that a I I sawed it off and b that it it still left his signature on the guitar intact <laughs> nice. with the way that the, the arc worked. But, yeah. but yeah, that was, that was a ball. And, and, um, I got to do, uh, some stuff with a bunch of other great sacred steel players like the Campbell brothers, mm -hmm. um, which are, you know, there's two or three amazing steel guitar players at a time in that band. We got to jam together at a, a blues fest a couple of years ago and um it was in it was really inspiring and and uh and gave me a boost when guys like that who are so amazing at traditional lap steel playing were not only you know kind of inspired by this technique but also really complimentary like hey man you're doing some this is not just uh, you throwing something different at it so it looks weird when you're doing it. There's actually some stuff you can do that is is novel and adding to the conversation. So it was yeah. it was nice to get a um, a vote of approval from from people in that world who are just masters of it sure. um, and yeah. inspiring to keep going and see what else I could stumble on. Yeah, awesome man, so cool. Hey, let's talk about the latest. Uh, Wide Mouth Mason record, I want to go with you, which, as we said, it came out late 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, you're all good to go to start touring on it, but uh, <laughs> gigs are, gig, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll come. But gigs aside, man, the record's fantastic. I've, I've, um, I've read reviews of the album that, that called A Return to Your Blues Roots. Is that, is that accurate? 
I think, well, it, it definitely is. Um, our first record was so informed by all of the, the stuff that we had been playing in the, in the clubs coming up and um, definitely again, the, the Hendrix and, and Stevie Ray and mm-hmm. the, um, that side of us was, was really explored. And we loved so many different styles of music that um, there would always be uh, blues was like the middle 10 letters of our alphabet. So it was always there in everything we did, but we loved exploring other influences because our mm-hmm. philosophy was always, there's only three of us and I'm singing lead all the time. So we can only get so far from sounding like us, no matter what we attempt. Yeah. Um, if we tried to do polka music, it would sound, we would swing it the way we swing it and it would yeah, be me yeah. singing it. So it would sound like us playing it. So we followed our muse all over the place from, you know, the most sly in the family stone kind of funk record that we could make mm-hmm. to the heaviest record and down tune that we could make and really explore that all over the place. And on all of those records, there would be bluesy stuff, but it wasn't necessarily the single that would get picked from that record that would get a bunch of promotion behind it. Mm-hmm. But I want to go with you was the first record that I wrote playing the lap steel this way. And mm-hmm. When I started writing the songs for it um, and we started jamming on them, uh, my, my drummer forever in the band, Seth Wan and I, I could only comfortably paint in primary colors. I could, I could play two or three chords reliably in tune. So I was starting to write around those two or three chords, okay. which led me really far down a, you know, Charlie Patton and Sunhouse and Book of White and listening to all that stuff and and being so moved by it, but wanting to make sure that I wasn't um, speaking in a voice that wasn't mine. I didn't want to sing about crossroads and and things that yeah. that aren't my life, that aren't me. So I thought, well, it would be interesting to make a record that's musically inspired by and based on these kind of stomp blues songs, but to to steer as clear as possible from um, those subject matters and to, to be true to who we are and, and not infringe upon anybody else's identity mm-hmm. by making it lyrically and melodically informed by all the other stuff that, that, that we are and, and who we've been. So that definitely got it. Once it, the, it became clear that the, the framework of songs were mostly going to be blues based. We really went down that path and, okay. and enjoyed doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I guess the irony is you end up with a more authentic uh, blues expression when, when you're focusing on those personal themes rather than singing about hellhounds or whatever wild animals yeah. you don't have any contact with in real life. So <laughs> that's, that's cool. right. Yeah. I like that. And we, we went for, the recording method. And, and I think a lot of bands say they're going to do this and then, you know, hear the results and decide that they're, they're going to ease back and do some other things where we thought a lot of those records from those eras that we'd love would be 30 or 40% improvised in the studio where we'd have a pretty good idea of what the verse was and the chorus was, and maybe some other thing, but not a hundred percent sure what the arrangement would be or what would happen. And our, our uh, bassist that we had had, had uh, left the band right before then. So we actually tracked it um, with me playing 
lap steel and singing and my drummer playing in a in a open room where I could we could still have eye contact with each mm-hmm. other and we added the bass to it later and we okay. everything on it is first or second take there awesome. are very few overdubs beside the bass being overdubbed afterwards um and it allowed us to be really free if i if i went off on a tangent he could follow me no bass player had to try and look at my three slides and figure out what chord i was playing (laughs) they could just overdub after that's cool yeah so we really underthought and and let ourselves be inspired by the moment that's so cool i love that in fact i think you've answered um give answer one of my questions when you say there's minimal overdubs because i'm wondering some of your tones i mean a lot of the tones are ginormous there's this is totally throaty drivey screaming dirty sound going on but there's a lot of clarity going on as well are you like multi-amping or you if it's a dry signal going through how are you getting your guitar so three-dimensional if it's if it's one take Good question. When uh, I I played most of the record on a Gretsch um, Honey Dripper uh, resonator guitar, and then the the Robert Randolph PV Power Slide lap steel, mm-hmm. and um, both of them retain quite a bit of clarity when they when they go through any kind of amp. Um, and both times the the vocal mic would be there as well, picking out some of the, okay. the string sounds as I yeah, was yeah, as yeah. I was doing okay. them. That makes sense. Um, and some of it comes down to there's a a, a pedal maker, um, and the company is called Gooch Effects um, out of Philadelphia. And he had made me a couple pedals. We became friends, and he just started sending me stuff. And he made me one called the Verover Drive. For my last name Love and it. one called the freemason fuzz for the band widemouth mason and both uh-huh. of them while being one is obviously an overdrive and one is a fuzz but both of them are really great at retaining you can hear all the notes in the chord they don't mm. necessarily mush into one um but they do make you know the fuzz is a is a really big throaty righteous fuzz and the ver overdrive is really touch sensitive um, and I played through a, a beautiful tremolux belonging to the, the Ryan Dahl, the guy whose studio we made it at, who, who co-produced it with us and engineered it all. And um, something about that combination um, just really nailed that, where if we wanted to hear more of the clarity, we'd we'd have the mic on the resonator. But if we wanted more dirt, we'd have another mic on the cabinet that the resonator was plugged into an amp and plugged into. Um, and it was, it was sequestered so that it wouldn't feed back when I was playing the resonator particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just worked. Ryan's really great at getting guitar tones and, and um, so many of the producers and engineers we worked with have been, amazing at us being able to reference a recording and go you know at the end of house burning down on electric Ladyland, what the oh yeah yeah yeah, i, I can get that tone for you so they'd, they'd help us sculpt <laughs> that stuff a lot that's cool very nice there's some um yeah so many great great moments Let, let's uh let's talk through a couple modern love is a great bowie cover um oh yeah and you just sit on chord one most of the time i love that 
I've I've been doing having grown up playing in just one band um, from when I was eleven, starting to play with Safwan as a drummer to you know well into my thirties before I ever really played with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I started putting this series of shows together in Vancouver where I'd invite people who'd never played together before to play at a blues club or a, a jazz club. And we wouldn't talk about what we were going to do. We would just get on stage and start going and Mm -hmm. have to make it up. And some of the time I'd find myself just improvising lyrics and making stuff up. But other times you'd start a groove and just start singing a Prince song over it or, or a Hendrix song. And one of the nights um, I just found myself singing modern love and I I love the original version of it, but I realized it would work really well over just like a, a superstition groove kind of a yeah. of one chord blues stomp and it's it's really fun to play to watch people go oh this is cool that's vaguely familiar oh my god it's that <laughs> song so we'd, we'd actually um not recorded a cover for a proper record before but uh, okay. this felt like we gave it enough of a our own spin to include in the other stuff and it felt like it fit Nice. The song Anywhere has some really cool harmonics in the intro. Is that the behind the slide harmonics idea you were talking it's, about? Um, they're sort of the, like the, the right-hand Lenny bro oh, thing okay. where you okay. know, your yep. index finger index touches thumb. 12 frets above the note and your thumb okay. picks it. But I'm doing it with my left hand playing slide notes. Yeah, so it does add a... A, a sort of a ghostly quality to it yeah and uh and and makes it ring differently because it's ringing on both sides of the slide you can hear the the strings ringing on both mm. sides um and the definitely that that song was the most pop of all the other songs that were on it but it, the uh-huh. resonator and the the girthy tone of the lap steel kind of tied it together with yeah, those other yeah. more bluesy jams yeah nice Hey, your vocal is killing it. You, you, I mean, we're obviously talking guitars on the Guitar Speak podcast, but I, I love your vocals. And I guess you pulling off the tri-slide stuff plus this super expressive uh, singing that you're doing is is quite a feat. Thank you. Hey, um, Well, it, it goes back to what you said about did, you know, did starting to learn bottleneck um affect the way that i played regular guitar and learning slide changed me as a singer especially learning lap steel because again it, i i think i had a default vibrato before that i okay. not only that i that i would do but was the only one i could do yeah um it was a muscle memory vibrato that i grew up singing with and that's that's what i had and spending so much intent and focus on my slide vibrato taught me a lot about vocal vibrato and Mm -hmm. when i could choose to just confidently sit in the middle of the note without shaking it at all Uh when i wanted to apply vibrato and would it be big waves moving slowly or little waves moving quickly and uh i got a lot more confident in there are some notes that are just more comfortable to sing than others Mm -hmm. um one after the other and again, slide playing made me so comfortable singing notes that would have been in between your, the, the givener yeah, part of okay. your voice and the relaxed part of your voice that can be kind of hit and miss as a singer. Um, 
so yeah, it, it very much informed that and having to learn how to sing those songs and play them at the same time was a challenge to, to have the steel so that you're not looking down all the time while you're performing for people Sure, because it's hard to engage with them. So, um, again, I just find myself after we wrote and recorded the record, um, I find myself trying to sit and play, not looking, closing my eyes or looking up. And again, it, it just went back to being seasick and out of tune for the first <laughs> bunch of that time um, where I realized how much of what, I, of what I was relying on was what I could see. And I, I know from freestyling or, or going off on tangents on regular guitar that when you close your eyes, that's when, even at gigs, when you have those moments where you're so in the zone and you close your eyes and you kind of come to a few minutes later mm -hmm. and realize that you've been playing the most expressively that you could ever play, the most mm -hmm. unreserved and unguarded and just letting the, the music speak through you, that, then you kind of shake your head after like someone waking up in a, in a TV show from a dream, going, Oh, Whoa, what was I just doing? <laughs> um, that that comes from those moments where you're not thinking about what you're doing, not watching what you're doing and you're just closing your eyes and going. Um, I had to work to be able to do that and sing at the same time, but it was a fun challenge it was fun to try and figure out how am i gonna do this at the same time as this and um how do you know rub your tummy and pat your head and walk mm -hmm. and and talk at the same time our our brains are capable of being stretched if we decide to stretch them absolutely and you've uh you've done that and continue to do that and expand your your voice as a musician and i think that's fantastic that's super inspiring and uh Sean, thank, thank you, you so much for joining me today. It's been fantastic talking about all this stuff. And uh, I just want to rush off and play my guitar now, which is, uh, I think, the <laughs> my best. My work here is done then. Yeah, I'm, the best. I'm so pleased. Outcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's been a, a pleasure. And, and I think that that would be the my motto is, is you know, you if you keep trying, you'll be able to do it. So try stuff that's outlandish that you can't imagine yourself doing and eventually – You'll get there. Awesome. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, brother. All right, there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Now, this podcast was brought to you by The Pedal Movie, the feature-length film all about effects pedals created by Reverb. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit thepedalmovie.com. The show was also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by ex-head of guitar at GIT, Joe Elliott. Check out fretboardbiology.com for more information. Alrighty then, you have been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling, and as the legendary German rocker Michael Schenker once told me, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.